We're going to be in Revelation 20 this morning, and uh, this is an exciting morning for me because this is the first week that I've actually gotten to preach uh, with our expansion pretty much all done. All the chairs are finally installed up there in the upper section. Uh, I, I should say 99% of the chairs. There's a couple of chairs not quite done, but uh, for the most part, they're all up there. It's exciting for me because in one form or another, uh, Grace Creekside, we've been in a construction phase, either talking about construction or in the midst of construction for something like five years. And so it's a huge joy to see the completion of the process uh, taking shape. If you've ever been involved in a construction uh, process, whether just maybe you've built a house or you've been involved or engaged in a process like this, uh, you know that uh, there's a lot of dreaming and a lot of uh, vision that goes into it. You begin with just kind of a picture in your mind of what you want to build. And then you go to an architect, and the architect will put together drawings, but also just sort of renderings uh, to let you see what the building might look like when it's done. Here's a few of the ones that they gave us uh, about six or seven years ago when we first started thinking about this building. And it looks pretty much like that. There's a few little differences, but it turned out pretty much like they gave us. Here's a picture of this room uh, from up in the upper section looking down. Here's a picture of uh, what the foyer was going to look like. Again, looks pretty much like that, except for the see-through people, but the rest of it looks pretty much the same. Uh, my favorite picture that they gave us was this one here uh, from the parking lot, standing next to a sign. I don't believe we have that exact uh, sign out there, but the, the parking lot and the building looks basically the same. But this guy, I understand they put uh, people like that kind of for perspective so you can see how big things are. But I saw this and, and I started thinking and dreaming like what, what kind of person is going to come to Grace Creekside? Who is this guy? I mean, he's standing out in the parking lot. He's wearing a Great Lakes t-shirt. I don't know why. Maybe he moved down from up north. He's looking for a place where he can worship God. Or maybe he's just a spiritual seeker. We don't really know. Maybe he's just a security threat. We don't really know. <laughs> but, but the pictures give you a vision of what it's going to be. And then you get to see it take shape over time. And with every construction project, you eventually get to a place where uh, the, the main bones of the building and the main things inside and outside are done, and you hit what they kind of call the punch list phase. If you've ever built a house, you know the punch list phase uh, might include like, okay, there's a, there's a patch of carpet over here that needs to be added, or there's a spot on the wall where the paint needs to be touched up, or there's this deal here that needs to be installed, or like in this room, there's two chairs that still need to come in. The, the broad structure is there. Most of it is done. What you have been building is taking shape, but there's just a few loose ends that you got to tie up before it's all done, before the full building is complete. The reason I share that is because in the Revelation chapter 20, this morning, we're going to see the completion of God's punch list as he is building his kingdom. That we're going to see, you remember as we've, as we've walked through the book of Revelation and, and throughout the book of Revelation, we've looked at what a lot of the scripture says about God's promises being fulfilled, God's vision for the kingdom he's building, a place where men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will gather together to worship him on a perfect new heavens and new earth with no sin, no death, no Satan, no evil, none of that. God has been building that. So a, a few weeks ago, we looked at the destruction of Babylon. 
Remember the destruction of the economic and religious systems that were opposed to God's kingdom. Before God's kingdom could come, all other competing kingdoms have to be destroyed. And then two weeks ago, before Thanksgiving, we were in Revelation 19, and we saw the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ, as he comes to the earth. And he defeats all of the kings of the nations that have opposed God's kingdom. He takes the Antichrist and the false prophet, casts them into the lake of fire. And so everything is set up for Jesus now to reign on the earth, except there's a couple of loose ends. First of all, death has not yet been destroyed. But before God's kingdom can come in its fullness, death has to be done away with. Remember, because death is a great enemy of humanity. Death was not intended to be a part of our lives. Death entered our lives because of sin, and through sin, we all are destined for death apart from the intervention of God. So death still has to be abolished. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy that will be abolished, destroyed, done away with. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So death still has to be done away with. That's part of the punch list. You may remember that we talked a couple of weeks ago about how all of these enemies are defeated, but Satan is still out there. The devil, the dragon, up to this point in the book of Revelation has not been done away with once and for all. That's significant. That's a major punch list item. The devil has to be destroyed. So what we're going to see in Revelation 20 is the completion of all of these plans that God has that need to happen before his final kingdom arrives. Revelation 20 is one of the best known and most important chapters in the book of Revelation because it's also one of the most controversial. But at its heart, Revelation chapter 20 is going to show us that in the end, King Jesus will fulfill all of his promises and defeat all of his enemies. King Jesus will fulfill all the promises that he made in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that he made to the nation of Israel, that he made to the church. All those promises will be fulfilled, and every enemy, sin, death, Satan, will all be destroyed once and for all. By the end of Revelation 20, we're going to see all of that happen, and that's going to pave the way for the final picture, the final aspect of God's kingdom that we'll talk about next week, the new heavens and the new earth. This week we're talking about the thousand-year millennial kingdom where Jesus will reign on the earth on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem for a thousand years over the nation of Israel and his people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So we're going to see King Jesus will fulfill all his promises and defeat all of his enemies. That's where we're headed this week, that everything that is not of Jesus Christ has to fall down before the kingdom can be fully constructed, before the kingdom can come. So that's what we're going to talk about this week. And and this this, uh, passage is going to challenge us really to ask ourselves, am I investing my life? in things that are going to last for eternity? Or am I investing my life, my time, my energy, my money, everything God has given, am I investing my life in things that aren't going to last? Things that won't be a part of the final structure, of the final building. King Jesus will fulfill all of his promises and defeat all of his enemies. I wanna say one other thing. When I wrote down this main point of our passage this week, I wrote it down and I thought, that sounds really familiar. And maybe it sounds familiar to you. 
If you were with us in August, you may not remember, I had a very similar main point when we gave an overview of end times. And I said, King Jesus will fulfill all of his promises, defeat all of his enemies, and he will save all of his people. You may remember that. So I went back and looked. I was like, oh yeah, I've said this before. That's okay. We're coming full circle now. This week we're going to see the completion of all God's promises, the defeat of all of his enemies. Next week we'll see the final salvation of all of God's people for all of eternity. That's where we're headed. So follow with me, Revelation chapter 20. I'm gonna start in verse one as we look first at Jesus coming to fulfill all of his promises. So starting in verse one. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him. For a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So this passage starts with something really kind of remarkable and interesting. An angel comes from heaven, one of these strong angels that John has seen throughout the book. He's got a chain in his hand, and he grabs Satan, he binds Satan with the chain, and then he tosses him into the abyss. Now, we've seen the abyss a few times in the book of Revelation, and we've seen it elsewhere in Scripture. The abyss is like a temporary holding place for those who have opposed or rejected God as they await their final judgment. So sometimes the abyss is also called like Hades or Sheol or those types of words. It's a temporary place where people wait after death, but also we're going to see Satan and the demons are awaiting their final judgment. So right here, John sees this angel come, and he's got a chain, and he binds up Satan, and he casts him into the abyss, and then he seals it. He locks it up. Now, when I read this, I thought, man, this is really remarkable because we think of Satan as being so powerful, so strong, so scary, right? There's these passages that are true. He's he's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. If I go up against Satan, I'm going to lose that battle. But here we have this angel of God that just grabs a chain, ties him up, and tosses him into an abyss for a thousand years. It reminded me when I read this of when I was a kid, uh, one of my jobs was to walk our little dog through the neighborhood when I was eight or nine years old. And our dog was, he was little. He was, his name was Brownie because he was brown and we were children and that was the best name we could come up with. And so uh, Brownie was maybe 15 to 20 pounds, very, very fluffy and very, very small. And so I would walk Brownie through the neighborhood. Brownie didn't know he was small. He thought he was big. He thought he was scary. And so he would growl and bark at this German shepherd that was always behind a gate along our walk. And Brownie would growl and the German shepherd would bare its teeth and growl back and drool would come down its mouth. And, and uh, I thought, man, I'm glad that that German shepherd is behind the gate until the German shepherd figured out how to get over the gate. And so Brownie would bark at him, and then once or twice, this dog jumped over his gate and came after my dog, this 70-pound German shepherd coming after my 15-pound ball of fluff dog, Brownie. And I was only eight years old. I couldn't separate them. I couldn't save my dog. And I remember thinking, he's going to kill my dog. 
But what was remarkable was both times it happened when I was a kid, all of a sudden this, this young man rode up on a bicycle. To this day, I don't know where he came from. I don't know where he went. He rode up on a bicycle. He stopped his bicycle. He grabbed the German shepherd by the scruff of the neck, brought it over, tossed it behind the gate, locked the gate, and said, you're good. You can keep going. And I'm like, wait, who are you? And he turned around, and he went away. We used to joke that he was my guardian angel. In hindsight, I think he was probably the dog's guardian angel. I, I realize that's theologically sketchy, whether dogs have guardian angels. But I thought, how amazing that here it is, this dog, I can't tame him, I can't control him. He's scary, he'll rip me apart, he'll rip my dog apart. And yet this guy comes up and he just grabs him and puts him behind a gate and shuts it because he's stronger than the beast that was attacking him. That's what we see in Revelation chapter 20. This is just one of God's angels. He grabs the most fearsome enemy we face and he just says, nope, you're going in the pit. And he tosses him in for a thousand years and locks it up. Now, why doesn't he just destroy Satan at this point? You may have that question. I want you to hold on to that question. We're going to see that later on. But I want you to continue with me in Revelation chapter 20 as we talk about what happens next. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Who is the they? Well, we see that in the next sentence. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. So this is those who were killed during the tribulation period that we've just talked about for not worshipping the beast. Now they come to life. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So after Satan is locked up, Jesus reigns with his people, with these tribulation saints, but also remember the church came back with Jesus in Revelation 19. That's us, those from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from every era of history who have trusted in Jesus, are now here with Jesus. Jesus reigns on the earth for a thousand years, and this is what we call the millennial kingdom. His people reign with him. At some point, I believe also that Old Testament saints, those who are saved by grace through faith in the Old Testament, people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and those who knew God, they also are resurrected and they reign with Jesus for a thousand years. You remember, as we've walked through the book, this, we've showed this chart every week. So this is where we are in this millennial kingdom. So remember, at some point, the church is raptured. We don't know when. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And then we've talked about this seven-year tribulation period. During that period of time, people from Israel as well as from among the Gentiles are coming to trust in Jesus. So we've seen this remnant of Israel, this 144,000 sealed with the name of Jesus on their foreheads, 12,000 from each tribe. So there is a renewed nation of Israel that emerges during this time that reigns with Jesus along with the saints from every era and every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who reign with Jesus for a thousand years. Now, I, I mentioned earlier, Revelation 20 is important, but it's also controversial. And part of that is not everybody agrees with what I have up here. 
We talked about that the first week. We won't know for sure uh, that I'm right until we get to the kingdom, right? But, but there are different views on this thousand years. And so I want to talk about that for a minute, and here's why. Because we believe that this thousand-year reign of Jesus is in fulfillment of certain promises that God made to the nation of Israel, that now the church, we also get to share in the blessings that God will give in the end to believing Israel. But this is a fulfillment of God's promises. You remember we talked about some people, those who are amillennial, they don't hold that this is a literal thousand-year kingdom. Instead, they would say all those Old Testament promises that God made to Israel, they've now been transferred to the church. So there is no promise left for God's people Israel anymore. They are fulfilled spiritually rather than in an earthly or literal way. And this thousand-year kingdom is simply a figurative number. God's kingdom, they would say, is happening actually right now through the church or through Christ reigning in heaven. So that's called the amillennial perspective. Then there was also the postmillennial perspective. And remember, the postmillennial perspective says the church will gradually build the kingdom of God on earth by sharing the gospel. The idea is more and more people will come to know Jesus and the world will get better and better and better and then Jesus will return. Uh, I think uh, one of the reasons I don't hold that view, honestly, is just because history doesn't work that way. Right? The world has not proven to get better and better and better, but instead, the more time has gone on, it seems like things get worse and worse and worse. So we talked about how our view is called the premillennial view. That is simply, we take this thousand years in Revelation to be a literal 1,000-year kingdom that is still to come, and this is important. It is a fulfillment of God's promises to the nation of Israel, the covenant promises that God made to the nation of Israel that were never completely fulfilled. Why were they never completely fulfilled? Because the nation of Israel was never faithful to God in the way that they were called to be through the Old Testament. Also, salvation, final salvation, required the death of Christ for sin and the resurrection of Christ to defeat death and defeat sin once and for all. So we hold this as a fulfillment of God's covenant promises to the nation of Israel. Now, I want to flesh that out. I want to remind you of some of these promises, because if we're talking about God's punch list, that part of that punch list is he's got to fulfill these promises, I want you to understand what these promises are. So we begin with Genesis 12, the promise God made to Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in other words, he says, Abram, I'm going to give you a land that I promised to you. I'm going to give you descendants. A nation is going to come from you. That's the nation of Israel. And then through your descendants, all of the nations will be blessed. Paul tells us that in the book of Galatians, Paul tells us that that blessing to all the nations ultimately is Jesus Christ. That because Jesus died, Jesus rose, we not only have eternal life, but we as Gentile believers can be united 
with the nation of Israel to participate in the promises that God made. These promises are made to the nation of Israel, but we get to participate in them by being God's people in Jesus Christ. Then there's this promise to David, to King David. God said to King David, David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is a promise of the coming Messiah. Most theologians agree with that. We know that Jesus is the coming Messiah. We know that now. But notice the first time Jesus came, he did not reign on the throne of David in Jerusalem over the nation of Israel. The next time he comes, that's what we're going to see in fulfillment of this promise that God will raise up a descendant, a Messiah, a king who will reign on David's throne over the nation of Israel in a kingdom of peace and security. And then there is Jeremiah 31, what's called the new covenant, where God says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That covenant was the law of Moses. And he says, my covenant which they broke. We talked about that a moment ago. Although I was a husband to them, they weren't faithful to the covenant, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. In other words, God says, hey, Israel, the day is coming when you will be saved, not because you're faithful to the law of Moses, because they never will be. But God says, I am going to forgive your sin and write it on your hearts. How does that happen? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the giving of the Holy Spirit to write God's law on the hearts of Jesus' people. But then he goes on and he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city, that is the city of Jerusalem, will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The idea is even though Jew and Gentile alike have been disobedient, unfaithful to God, the day is coming when God will still fulfill his promises and establish a kingdom in the, in the city of Jerusalem over the nation of Israel, including Jew and Gentile alike, who will worship and serve Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That is still coming. We believe that this thousand-year kingdom in Revelation 20 is a fulfillment of those promises. And I want to be clear. doesn't mean that every Israelite will be in that kingdom. Jesus was really clear about that. Matthew chapter 8. He says, I say to you that many will come from east and west, that's the Gentiles, and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there will be Gentiles and Jews together who know God, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not every Israelite, just like not every Gentile, 
but those who have exercised faith in Jesus Christ, who are saved by grace through faith in him alone, will be a part of this kingdom where Jesus will reign on the earth in fulfillment of the promises of God. This is why in Romans chapter 11, Paul uses this image of like an olive tree. And he says it's the, it's the Israelites who are the native branches, but the Gentiles we got grafted in through Jesus so that we get to participate in the blessings that God gave to the nation of Israel through Jesus Christ. He says, I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. If some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. That's the promises of God. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. That is the promises were made to the people of Israel, fulfilled to the people of Israel. But we as Gentile believers, we get to be a part of it. We get to participate. That's what this thousand-year kingdom fulfills. That's why Revelation 20 comes before chapters 21 and 22, why there are two stages in the final fulfillment of God's kingdom, the thousand-year earthly reign, and then we'll see in chapters 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth that goes on forever. What is this thousand-year reign going to be like? It's going to be really, really great. Let me defend that from Scripture and be more specific. Isaiah chapter 11, a passage we often read at Christmas time, in fact. A shoot will grow out of Jesse's rootstock. That's David's father. A bud will sprout from his roots. The Lord's spirit will rest on him, a spirit that gives extraordinary wisdom, a spirit that provides the ability to execute plans, a spirit that produces absolute loyalty to the Lord. He will take delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by mere appearances or make decisions on the basis of hearsay. He will treat the poor fairly and make right decisions for the downtrodden, of the earth. So Isaiah says when the Messiah comes, when he sets up his kingdom, he's going to first of all set up a government that does what is right. Can you imagine that? A government that does what is right, that, that enforces proper justice, that takes care of the poor, that doesn't make decisions simply based on their own preferences or what they see or what's popular in the moment, but that does what is right in the eyes of God. In Jesus' kingdom, there will be perfect justice and perfect righteousness. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and order the wicked to be executed. Justice will be like a belt around his waist. Integrity like a belt around his hips. Nobody will get away with evil in the millennial kingdom, in the kingdom of Jesus. A wolf will reside with a lamb and a leopard will lie down with a young goat. An ox and a young lion will graze together as a small child leads them along. A cow and a bear will graze together. Their young will lie down together. A lion like an ox will eat straw. A baby will play over the hole of a snake, over the nest of a serpent. An infant will put his hand. This is a picture of harmony and peace, not only between nations, but in creation itself. I'm going to guess those of you who have babies or toddlers or kids, if they come to you and they say, I am bored, you don't say, hey, I saw a rattlesnake hole in the backyard. Go play there. It'll be fun. But Isaiah says the peace and the harmony of the kingdom of God will be such that, that there will be harmony even amongst the creatures that normally don't get along and amongst children and dangerous animals. They will no longer injure or destroy 
on my entire royal mountain, for there will be universal submission to the Lord's sovereignty, just as the waters completely cover the sea, a place of submission to God, of a perfect, righteous, just government. Amos describes it also as a kingdom of prosperity. Everybody will have enough to eat. Everybody will have a place to live. He says, be sure of this. The time is coming, says the Lord, when the plowman will catch up to the reaper and the one who stomps the grapes will overtake the planter. Juice will run down the slopes. It will flow down all the hillsides. I will bring back my people Israel. They will rebuild the cities lying in rubble and settle down. They will plant vineyards and drink the wine they produce. They will grow orchards and eat the fruit they produce. In other words, nobody will steal it. Nobody will take their land. Nobody will kick them off. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them. It's an image of security and prosperity. So much harvest, so many grapes that the hills themselves are flowing with grape juice. You get thirsty, just grab a cup and go take some grape juice from the nearby hillside. There's such a great harvest. Jesus will reign for a thousand years. Satan will be bound. There will be peace, righteousness, justice, prosperity, enough for everybody. King Jesus will fulfill his promises. This is why John says, blessed are those who take part in the first resurrection. The first resurrection, I believe, is, a, is an overarching term that includes those who know Jesus in the church that came back with Jesus to reign in the kingdom, those who were saved by grace through faith in the Old Testament who are now reigning with Jesus at some point were resurrected, these tribulation saints and those Christians who survived the tribulation now reigning with Jesus alive in his kingdom. This is the first resurrection. Over them, the second death, he says, has no power. What's the second death? It is eternal death, eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. That leads us to the next major aspect of God's punch list before his final kingdom comes. King Jesus will fulfill all of his promises, but he will also defeat all of his enemies. King Jesus will fulfill all of his promises, but he will also destroy all of his enemies. Follow with me in verse seven. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So at the end of the thousand years, uh, the abyss is opened up. Satan's allowed to come out and start deceiving people again. Now, this should strike you as a bit strange because you go, how is it that Satan's so quickly able to gather an army to fight against God's kingdom? And you remember when we talked about him being bound a few minutes ago, I said, you may be wondering why. Why is he not just destroyed right away? Here's why. Because when Satan is released, he quickly gathers an army. By quickly gathering an army of people ready and willing to oppose God, that proves the depravity of mankind apart from the redemption of Jesus Christ. And it proves the justice of God's 
judgments. All right, here's what I mean. So you apparently have some people who are children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those who enter the millennial kingdom from the tribulation alive. Because this is still, remember, an earthly kingdom. So people are still having children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, some of whom apparently don't trust in Jesus. So that at the end of that thousand years, although there is external submission to the law of God and to the reign of Jesus Christ, there are people whose hearts are rebellious against him. And the idea is this. Sin doesn't ultimately come from my mom and dad doesn't ultimately uh, come from society, from the government, even under perfect conditions. Somehow sin erupts in the heart of man because we need the redemption of Jesus Christ by his death and resurrection. And so it proves no matter how long you give people, they're not just gonna figure it out and start doing what is right and obeying God. This validates what's coming next which is the eternal judgment of those who don't trust in Jesus Christ. So Satan gathers an army, and the text makes this reference to Gog and and Magog. Um, That's from Ezekiel 38. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail there, but the idea is he gathers up an army, and and Gog and Magog is a picture of an evil ruler who gathers an army of nations to surround the people of God. Very quickly, he's able to prove The depravity is rooted in the heart of fallen mankind, and their judgment is deserved. I don't know uh, if any of you in high school or maybe middle school had to read the novel The Lord of the Flies. Uh, The couple of chuckles and grunts tell me you did. Some of you had to read The Lord of the Flies. If you don't remember the story of The Lord of the Flies, it basically involves a a number of British boys. They're like 10 to 12 maybe. They are shipwrecked and it's during uh, a world war and they are British and they're shipwrecked on this little island, this little deserted island. And so the boys begin to create a society. They make rules. They make a little government and everything is going fine at first. But then they degenerate into chaos and violence and they start literally killing one another. And it turns dark really quickly as the novel goes on. It's a powerful picture of the depravity of mankind. In fact, it's such a memorable book and and such a part of our culture that people reference it in other situations. So for example, if you've got children and you leave them alone at the house for three or four hours, you may come home and especially if they're small, you may find that like there's crayon on the walls, there's paper everywhere, they've torn things apart, the cat is locked in the bathroom, like all of these things. And you come in and you're like, it's Lord of the Flies in this place because I left you alone. And I didn't give you instructions to tear the place apart and create havoc and chaos, but you found a way to do it anyway. Well, Revelation 20 tells us it's not just children who do that. It's humanity. Given enough time, the thousand years, an army develops ready to fight God. But what happens? Well, they gather up ready for the battle. And fire comes from heaven, wipes them out. Satan is once again taken. He's cast into the lake of fire, once and for all destroyed. That item on the punch list of God is taken care of. Because nobody defeats the kingdom of God 
And then what follows is the final judgment for those who don't know the Lord. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Let me pause. Remember we said Hades is a place, a temporary place of holding for those who are awaiting judgment. Now everybody comes up out of Hades and out of the sea. And the dead are standing before the throne of God and they were judged. Now this is important, verse 13. They were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. There goes the last enemy. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the second death. So what's going on? Now there is this final judgment at a great white throne called the great white throne judgment where the unbelieving dead are raised up to face judgment. Now, this is one of several judgments mentioned in the Bible and in the New Testament specifically. And here's what I want us to understand. Every judgment that is mentioned in the New Testament is actually a judgment of works. Notice that there are books that are opened up that contain their deeds, their works. And then there's another book that is the book of life. And it says they're judged according to what they had done. This is true for every judgment that we see in the New Testament. Now, follow with me, because this may sound strange to you, right? Because you're like, aren't we saved by grace through faith in Jesus? Yes, but the judgments that we see in Scripture always say we are judged by what we do. So how do those two fit together? Let me show you the other major judgment in the New Testament that we see for just a minute. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Not the same as the one here in Revelation 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, For we, that is those of us who know Jesus, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or or bad. And you say, well, why? Why do I have to appear before that judgment if I know that I have eternal life solely through believing in Jesus' death and resurrection on my behalf? If eternal life is a free gift, why am I judged by my deeds? Here's why. Because that judgment doesn't determine whether you go to heaven. That's not what it's for. What determines whether you go to heaven? We see it here in Revelation chapter 20. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life. How does your name get written in the Lamb's book of life? By believing in Jesus. What is the judgment seat of Christ for Christians? It's actually like an award ceremony where faithful Christians who have honored Jesus well with how they've invested their time, their energy, their resources, their lives, they are given rewards. And the New Testament describes these rewards often as crowns. That, that, that become fodder for us to worship Jesus. Think about it this way. Toward the end of the school year, if you've got kids, sometimes the school holds an awards ceremony at the end. 
Your kid might get an award for being on the honor roll, might get an award for some athletic achievement or some character award, or maybe they just dress well. I don't know what they award all the kids for at all the schools, but they get an award. Now, that award, though, doesn't determine whether they're going to go from like third grade to fourth grade, does it? That decision is determined on another basis. The award is to recognize something exceptional. That your child has, yes, passed to move to the next grade, but also has been faithful, hard worker, whatever it may be. Our eternal life, all the tests were passed for eternal life by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all the righteousness necessary. And now when we stand before Jesus on that day, Our prayer is we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and we receive at the judgment seat of Christ a reward that is given based upon our faithfulness to Jesus by the power of the Spirit. It's not a reward that we have somehow earned because we're really good. It's a reward that Jesus gives us at the end if we faithfully listen to his Spirit and follow his voice. So now, uh, back to the great white throne judgment. Notice it is also a judgment of works. It's not a judgment at this moment to determine whether people will go to the lake of fire. That is determined because their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. This is what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 12. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Eternal destiny is determined only by have I trusted Jesus Christ and is my name written in the book of life. So here at the great white throne, the unbelieving dead are gathered, judged based on their works. What is this? This is a sentencing hearing. This determines not where they will go, but the severity of of their punishment, based upon their works. Jesus refers to this, in fact, several times in the New Testament. For example, in Luke chapter 12, he talks about the judgment for those who have been given more information, like the law of Moses, or who have heard Jesus teach. And he says that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or do what his master asked, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know his master's will and did things worthy of punishment will receive a light beating. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be asked. Elsewhere, he says, the cities of Israel during the time of his ministry who heard him preach, who witnessed his miracles, who saw the Messiah, they will face a harsher judgment on the day of judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah, who didn't know God. And so here at the great white throne, they gather together to be sentenced based upon deeds. But if their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, they experience the second death. Now, now this for us should be both sobering as well as hopeful. Sobering, of course, because the reality is that before the kingdom of God comes, Again, part of this punch list is that every enemy and every person who has rejected Jesus Christ will face judgment and the second death. It's sobering. It should remind us of the eternal stakes of our lives. 
but it's also hopeful, and here's why. Jesus doesn't run out of pages in his book of life. He doesn't run out of spots. It's an open invitation. And all through the book of Revelation, we've seen this. Angels proclaiming the gospel, witnesses proclaiming the gospel, creation proclaiming the good news of God. All throughout the scripture, we see that God is always calling out, always reaching out, always saying, there's still more room, there's still more room, there's still more room, there's still more entries in the Lamb's book of life. And so it offers hope as well as exhortation to the people of God to to be with Jesus Christ and participate as he extends that invitation. It reminds us here that the hope of eternal life is found only, only, only in Jesus. There is no other way. There is no other name by which men can be saved on heaven, in heaven, or on earth other than Jesus Christ. The hope of eternal life is found only in Jesus. If you don't know Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation makes it so plain, but also offers an invitation. All you have to do is accept that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. So you don't have to face eternal death, but you can receive eternal life. For those who know Jesus, it it reminds us that Christ's kingdom is the only thing that will last forever. By Christ's kingdom, I simply mean uh, the word of God upon which it is built, that is the foundation of Christ's kingdom, Jesus himself, the king, God the Father, God the Spirit, and the people that God has made in his image. That's what will last forever. And so Revelation 20 asks us this question, I think, how am I investing my life? Am I investing my life in things that will last or in things that will fade away? 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, each one must be careful how he builds. We're back to our building illustration. For no one can lay any foundation other than that which is being laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each builder's work will be plainly seen, for the day will make it clear, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what kind of work each has done. If what someone has built survives, he will receive a reward. That's at the judgment seat of Christ. If someone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as through fire." The idea here is be careful what you're building. What materials are you using as you build your life? You know, as far as I know, uh, there's no hay or straw uh, in the walls of this building or on the roof. We don't have a thatched straw roof because at the first sign of rain, wind, fire, whatever, it would be destroyed. It would go away. We try to build buildings with things that will hold up, things that will last. And the question here is, are you building your life on what will last? Are you using your money, your time, your career, your reputation to build up your own glory, to say, I want to build a kingdom for myself, or I want to build comfort for myself here. Primarily, that's what I want to do. Or am I taking my reputation, my money, my career, even within my family, and saying, I want to use every relationship that I have, every resource God has given me, and invest in the kingdom of God. 
Because that is what will last. Are you investing your life in the things that will last? I mentioned these chairs at the beginning. I'm so glad to have these permanent chairs. For those of you that have been with us since the elementary school days, you'll remember that in the elementary school, we used those black folding chairs. Some of y'all remember the black folding chairs. They worked in the elementary school. When we moved here, uh, they aren't a part of this room. Uh, Some of them are over in the children's wing, but I'll tell you, they are slowly falling apart. The backs fall off, the legs get wobbly, the seats fall apart. They're not built to last long term. Here's the thing. You're welcome to come in here one day and drag one of those folding chairs into this room and say, here is where I'm going to sit because I like this chair. That's fine. I'll only judge you a little. But I'm going to tell you this. It's going to fall apart, and it doesn't fit in this room. It's not part of the vision for what we built. Revelation 20 says this. Are are the building blocks of your life, are they consistent with the kingdom that God is building? Or are you going to be trying to drag your stuff into the kingdom of heaven? Say, look, look what I did. Look at my name. Look at, look at my bank account. Look at my reputation. Look at me. And yet at the judgment seat of Christ, it burns up. And what remains is what you've invested into the kingdom of God. Are you investing your life in things that will last? Are you investing your life in things that will last. The word of God, the people God has made, the values of his kingdom. Will you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for your word. We thank you for the hope that we anticipate of the coming of Jesus to the earth a second time to build his kingdom, to destroy every enemy, and to fulfill every promise. We thank you that we get to be a part of the fulfillment of those promises through Jesus Christ, and we pray we would spend our lives investing in his kingdom, sharing the gospel, studying your word, investing in those who are doing the same. Lord, we love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.